Well, good morning and welcome to our new series called I'm Not Okay. And what I want to do this morning, and don't worry, eventually I'll explain the weird dollhouse that's up here. As Pastor Evan put it up here, I have to tell you, he goes, Kirk, they're not going to be able to see you. <laughs> so, so he's uh, uh, going to struggle making it to heaven, but that's okay. Um, <laughs> Anyways, what I want to do in the series of I'm not okay, Evan's not okay, everybody's not okay, we've all got times and places in life where we're not okay, I want to start this whole thing off with a question. And it simply is this. What does it mean to live a life of faith even when everything around you is not okay? What does it mean to live a life of faith even when everything around you is not okay? Something I was thinking about this week as I was prepping and preparing and as I was praying was just how deeply wounded our world is, how deeply not okay our world is, and how it affects every single human life. It doesn't matter who you are. There's points in life where you find yourself just simply saying, I'm not okay. But the challenge is, is that in the world that we live in is that so often you're made to feel like you can't tell anybody you're not okay. <laughs> You have to pretend like you've got it all together. You've got to pretend like everything is just fine. <laughs> and you know where that seems to be especially true? <laughs> is when you come to church. <laughs> uh, when you come to church, you especially better give off that impression that I got everything put together. I'm all right. There are no problems. It's just fine. Oh, morning was great. Every one of the kids behaved like little angels. No, I did not spank them. That is not what I did this morning. No, no, I did not have to yell at them. No, they did not have to change six times out of, out of just their underwear. That's, I mean, like, we like to pretend it's just fine and everything's okay. And sometimes we need to have a safe place to be not okay. And so really one of the most important questions for people of faith is this. How do I hang on to God when I'm not okay? How do I hang on to God when I'm not okay? How do I love other people when I'm not okay? What do I do when I'm filled with disappointment and confusion and anger and fear? How do I keep going when life's not okay? And today as we start this new series, we're going to dive into one of the oldest, strangest, uh, most powerful stories, not just in the Bible, but actually in all of history. We're going to go through the book of Job, and we're going to do it in one day. <laughs> now, the book of Job is a long book. Some of you right now are like, oh, buckle up. We're going to be here till the summer bash starts at 5 p.m. tonight. No, we're not going to do that. It's going to be normal sermon length, all right? So because we're going to do the whole book of Job in one setting, what that means is that we're going to be taking like a 30,000-foot 30, view of the book of Job. And we're going to kind of come down like a helicopter, drop into like a section of Job, and then pop back up, and then drop back down, pop back up. And then there's a huge section of Job that, that we're going to kind of skip, but I'm going to summarize for you, all right? But let's go ahead and let's dive in. The story of Job starts this way. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. The story begins, in the land of Uz, there was a man whose name was Job. And it's the beginning of the story. And in the beginning, everything seems to be fine. In the beginning, everything is all right. What you just read, you're kind of like, boy, that sounds great. 
Boy, if that's what you're basing this I'm not okay series off, we got problems. That sounds good. (laughs) Everything seems to be okay. But let me tell you something. Trouble is coming. Trouble is coming to us. Trouble is coming to the land of us because us becomes the place where very bad things happen to a very good man. Us is the place not just where suffering comes, but where it comes without warning, without reason, without explanation. In fact, I would suggest to you today that us is the land of I'm not okay. Us is the land of I'm not okay. And every one of us at some point in time in our lives, we will do some time in the land of us. And maybe you're there right now. There are so many people for whom life is not okay because of things like divorce, anxiety, depression, disappointment, problems with kids, financial struggles, loss of job, crushing guilt. And so often the idea of I'm not okay is just beneath the surface. And we want to just cry out, I'm not okay. (laughs) But you can't. (laughs) And so it's a silent cry. It's a silent cry that sometimes you just say at night and it's just between you and God. It's just between you and you think whoever's listening, I'm not okay. I'm not okay. I'm not okay. But you can't say it out loud. (laughs) And so you're stuck. You're trapped in this world of not being okay but not being able to share that. And that's the land of us. Now, in verse 6 in the story of Job, in verse 6, the scenery takes a radical shift. The writer sets up the book kind of like it's almost like a play. See, there's action going on in the book of Job in two different locations. And so what I want to do is I want you to picture like a house. And we're using this dollhouse for this. And in the book of Job, the action that takes place is in two different places. And in fact, I'm going to turn this around so it's easier for you to see. But you've got a first floor and you've got a second floor. And what you're going to see in the book of Job is that there are some conversations that take place on the first floor. The first floor is earth. The first floor is the place where we dwell, where we exist, okay? The second floor, there's conversations taking place in the book of Job on the second floor, and it's like the spiritual realm. You're going to see some conversations take place up here between God and Satan that the first floor is not aware of. See, the interesting thing about this story is that it's telling you what takes place here, and it's telling you what takes place here. But those that live down here don't get to see what we get to see. See, the author is letting us in on what's taking place on both floors of the house. (laughs) But you have to understand as we walk through the story that Job, who lives down here on the first floor, does not get to see or hear the conversations that take place up here on the second floor. And this is crucial to the story of Job. We know what's going on both places. Job does not. Job cannot see, he cannot hear what's taking place up here on the second floor. So keep that in mind as we go, and I'll help point out as we walk through it what's a first floor conversation and what's a second floor conversation, but I think you'll see it's pretty clear. So let's keep reading in Job, all right? Keep that in mind. So the first part we read about Job, everything's okay, everything's going well, that's first floor. Now we're going to jump to the second floor, all right? It says, one day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? (laughs) There's no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. (laughs) 
Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well, then. Everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself you may not lay a finger. There's something that I want to make sure that we see here in this interaction between Satan and God. Because it shows such a clear distinction between the power of God and the power of Satan. I want you to understand that Satan comes to God and he wants to go after Job. And he can't do it without God's permission. I want you to understand how powerless Satan really is. He can't do anything without God allowing him to do it. And so it's clear who's the more powerful one. But I want you to understand that God isn't the one that's making bad things happen. I want you to understand there's an evil one that's, he says he's roaming the earth going to and from. There's an evil one who wants to attack you. And this is part of living in a fallen world. We live in a fallen world where there's an evil one who wants to attack you and make bad things happen. We live in a fallen world where there's free will. What does that mean? It means that bad people can freely choose to, bad thing, to do bad things that hurt good people. And so we live in this fallen world. And I want you to keep in mind, again, as we walk through this, that in our lives where you and I live, we live down here on the first floor. And we don't get to see the conversations that take place up here on the second floor. Keep that in mind. So when life is not okay down here on the first floor, when you feel like you're living in the land of us, keep in mind that we don't know what's going on on the second floor. We don't know the conversations that are taking place up here. Job doesn't know that Satan and the Lord just had this conversation. In the same way, we don't know that either. What that means is this. It means that we can't always understand the why behind the bad in our lives. It means we can't always understand the why behind the bad in our lives. And this is such a tough place to be. It's such a hard thing to accept to just go, because when bad things happen, we always want to know why, Right? Like, that's like, well, why did this happen, God? Why did you allow this? And why, why, why? We want to know why. And the hard part is, is when you're living life down here on the first floor, you don't get to see the second floor conversations, and we don't get to know why. And the truth of the matter is what you're going to see, because we think that the key to getting out of the land of us, we think the key to getting out of being not okay, is if I just understood why, I could fix it. What you're going to see today is the why doesn't really matter. <laughs> the why is not what gets you out of the land of us. I want to show you by the end of today what will get you out of the land of us, out of the land of I'm not okay. Let's keep going. So what happens next is Satan goes out and he attacks Job. He attacks Job and Job loses his livestock. He loses his wealth. He loses his servants. He even loses his children. Job loses everything. <clears throat> and so the question is, how will Job respond? What will he do? Let's keep reading. It says, at this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, naked I came from my mother's room, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. We're told that Job grieves. And as he grieves, he worships. And then he pauses to praise the name of the Lord. And then we're told that in all this, now remember, Job has just lost everything. He doesn't know the conversation that took place up on the second floor. But he worships, he praises the name of Jesus, and we're told that in all this he did not sin. 
did not sin. It's incredible. So that's Job. That takes place in the first floor. Now the next part of Scripture is going to go up to the second floor. Let me read to you what happens next, because the Lord and Satan begin to have another conversation. It says, Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? He's pointing him out again. Look, look how great Job is. (laughs) Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil, and he still maintains his integrity. Though you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. Skin for skin, Satan replied. A man will give all he has for his own life, but now stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said, very well then, he's in your hands, but you must spare his life. And now from here on out in the scripture, the rest of what we're going to read in scripture takes place here on the first floor. All right? And a lot of people think that the key question to the book of Job is where is God in the midst of suffering? A lot of people think, well, that must be the question. Where is God in the midst of his suffering? But that's really not the key question. In fact, I'll tell you that I think the key question is in Job chapter 1, verse 9. We just read it. It's a question that Satan asks the Lord. He asked him, does Job fear God for nothing? Does Job fear God for nothing? In other words, what what Satan's doing, the idea that Satan is proposing here is the idea that he's saying, hey, God, Job is just devoted to you because it's in his best self-interest. It's quid pro quo. Like, like he's devoted to you because you're devoted to him. You're doing good things for him, so he's doing good things back to you. It's kind of like he's like, hey, Job loves you, God, the way the cookie monster loves the cookie jar. (laughs) Turn off the faucet of cookies. Turn off the faucet of blessings. And then let's see how devoted Job really is. That's what Satan is saying here. He's saying we haven't attacked him enough. We haven't made his life hard enough. Now remember, he's lost everything. But Satan's going, look, he's still got himself. He's still in good health. He's still doing just fine. And so the Lord says, I won't lay a hand on him, but I'll allow you. And you'll see who my servant Job is. And so Job gets hit with this second wave of suffering. His body ends up being covered with painful sores from the crown of his head to the soles of his feet. He ends up going out to an ash heap, essentially to the, to the trash dump. And he begins to scrape the boils on his body with pottery shards. And he responds again. But this time there are some subtle differences in Job's response from the first wave of suffering to the second wave of suffering. Some things have changed. This time he doesn't say, hey, the name of the Lord be praised. (laughs) No, he goes to the ash heap, to the trash dump. He's sitting there. And maybe it's an act of grieving. Maybe he's been quarantined like a leper because he's so sick. And if they don't understand the sickness, they'll quarantine you. We're not sure. But he's off on his own, sick as can be, completely lonely. You ever felt like this is where your life is at? And as you hear that, are you like, yep, I felt like I was sitting at the dump scraping boils off my face. Been there, done that. (laughs) And maybe when you were at your lowest of lows, somebody came along, somebody who's supposed to help you, somebody who's supposed to point you in the right direction, and instead they said exactly the wrong thing. (laughs) That's Job's wife. (laughs) Job is sitting at the trash dump, scraping the boils of his face off with pottery shards from the trash, and his wife comes along, and I want to show you what his wife says to Job. Now remember, this is the second wave of suffering. They've gone through a lot. This is what she says to him. Curse God and die. Curse God and die. Probably didn't cheer Job up, right? (laughs) 
Let me say a, a word for Mrs. Job, because if you read through any commentaries and stuff, and a lot of times when people preach on Job, they, they give Mrs. Job a really hard time. And so, so rather than do that, let me just say, let, let's stop and think about her life situation, all right? Just like Job, she's lost everything too, right? Lost all their wealth, lost all their livestock, lost all of their children. But now she's got a husband who's incredibly sick that she'll have to take care of. A husband who it's clear he's dying, and at some point in time, he's going to die. And when he dies, if you understand their culture at that time, when her husband dies, then she becomes like an outcast. (laughs) She has no means to be able to make any kind of money, to make any kind of life for herself. She's going to live a life of destitution. And so she gives voice to the thoughts that I'll bet many of us have thought when we've been in the land of us. When you've been walking through some of the most difficult times that could, anybody could imagine, things that you're like, nobody else understands this because they've never been through it. She gives voice to the thoughts that sometimes we think, well, maybe we should just curse God and die. Maybe that would just be better. How will Job respond? What will Job say? Job says to her, you're talking like a foolish woman. This is so good. Watch this. He says, shall we accept good from God and not trouble? Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? See, that's a question we often fail to ask ourselves when we're in the land of us. See, see, before we walked into the land of us, when things were good, when life seemed all right, when there wasn't the challenge that we're facing now, we were more than willing to accept the good from God then. (laughs) Shall we accept the good from God and not trouble? Now, what you're going to see next is that even Job begins to struggle to understand God, though. In fact, at this point, after the second wave of suffering, <laughs> I want to show you something that it says here in the scriptures that we just read. It says, in all this, Job did not sin in what he said. So in the, in the first wave, in the first wave, see, I want you to notice something, because something just changed. After the first wave of suffering, Job worshiped God, he praised God, and, and, then, he, and, and, then, and then it says that in all this, he did not sin. Now the second wave of suffering has come. Things are even worse. His wife says, curse God and die. And it says that in all this, Job did not sin in what he said. Suddenly there's a qualification. It seems to imply that what came out of his mouth wasn't sin, but it seems to imply that maybe his heart is beginning to struggle to trust. This is how it typically works for us too. Before we put voice to our frustration and anger with God, our hearts and our mind begin to get frustrated, begin to fail, begin to struggle, begin to get upset. And so in his heart, Job has begun to struggle. No different than you and I when they're in the land of us. And so next, Job's friends, they hear about his trouble. And they go out to comfort him. And here's what we're told in chapter 2, okay? It says that when they, that's his friends, saw Job from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. (laughs) Now, they had heard it was bad about Job, but nothing prepared them for what they saw, (laughs) I don't know about you, but usually when you visit somebody who's sick and hurting, who's in bad condition, you try to cheer them up, right? You tell them, hey, I'm praying for you. You tell them, oh, you don't look that bad. Oh, you actually look better than what I thought. You know, you're doing, you're doing all right. I mean, think about it. If you are sick and hurting, like in the worst you've ever been, and somebody walks into you and goes, oh, my, I have to take my clothes off and sprinkle dust on my knees. Like, what in the world? 
That's what his friends do. They come to see him and they're, they're so shocked by how bad a shape he's in. Let's keep reading. It says, then they sat, this is so key, then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. I want to pause here for a moment. Imagine sitting with someone for seven days and seven nights in silence. This was such a powerful act that they did that it actually became a part of Jewish life. To this day in Judaism, people will speak of the sitting shiva, which literally means the sitting sevens. That when a friend is grieving and mourning, their friends will come and sit with them and mourn with them over a period of a week. Now listen, some of you right now, you might not be in the land of us. Maybe you've been in it in the past. You know that there's a chance it's coming in the future. But right now, you're not in the land of us, but you've got some friends or some family that are. That you know they're in turmoil and hurt and pain, and you're wondering and you're asking, oh, how do I help them? What can I do? This is your answer. This is what you do. This is, this is how you help. Because this right here is maybe the greatest example in the Bible of what Paul commands us in the book of Romans when Paul simply says, listen, church, mourn with those who mourn. Mourn with those who mourn. It's so striking to me that Paul doesn't say, hey, fix people who mourn. Fix them. <laughs> he doesn't say give advice to people who mourn. He doesn't say tell people who mourn that they shouldn't mourn, that they, they ought to be okay because everything's going to be just fine. <laughs> doesn't say that. He doesn't say, tell them if, if you just had enough faith, it'd be all right. If you just would pray enough, it would be okay. If you just believe enough, everything will turn out fine. He doesn't say all those stupid things that we sometimes say to people when we're trying to help that really aren't actually helpful. No, Paul just simply says, mourn with those who mourn. And that's what these friends of Job do. They go and they sit with him in silence for seven days. And finally, after seven days, Job speaks. And we're waiting eagerly to hear what Job has to say. Job's about to say something here on the first floor, but I picture those on the second floor, Satan and God, Jesus, watching, anticipating. What, what's he going to say? Because listen, if Job can repeat what he said in chapter 1, if Job can simply say, look, God gives and God takes away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. God gives and God takes away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. God gives and God takes away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. If he can just repeat what he did after the first wave of suffering, Job's going to be a really short book with a really happy ending, and God's going to go, see Satan, look at my servant. <laughs> so what does Job do? How does he respond? Chapter 3, verse 1. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. <laughs> and for the next 28 chapters, Job pours out a level of bitterness and confusion and sorrow and anger towards God that is staggering. Just staggering. And I want you to listen to some of what Job has to say over these next 28 chapters towards God and about God. At one point he says this. He says, the arrows of the Almighty are in me. My spirit drinks in their poisons. He's like, God, you're shooting at me. Quit shooting at me. He says, God's terrors are marshaled against me. He's saying, look, it's like as if God is at war against me. And so, so sometimes when suffering, we're told to just trust God. Just trust in God. But here's what I find interesting about the book of Job. He doesn't say that. 
Job accuses God. Job blames God. Job challenges God. He attacks God. He confronts God. And he doesn't do it as a skeptic. He doesn't do it as an atheist. He doesn't do it as somebody who doesn't believe in God. He does it as a believer. He's in the land of us. He's in the land of I'm not okay. And he actually calls out God and challenges him. Job goes on and he says, if only I knew where to find him. If only I could go to his dwelling. I would state my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. It's funny how how often in suffering we're told just trust God, but Job doesn't do that. Job challenges him and he says, I wish I could take God to court. If if God would just show up, we could fight this out man to man. (laughs) And then in chapter 38... (laughs) Job gets his wish. Watch this. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. What do you think that moment was like? Just imagine being Job right then. Here's what God says. God shows up and he says, Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? I mean, he's just like, you idiot, right? You, you idiot, you don't understand. He goes on, God says, where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Because obviously if you know that I'm messing up with you, if you know that your life is not what it's supposed to be, if you know that I've made a mistake, then clearly you were there when I made everything, right? <laughs> you were there at creation. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? <laughs> Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set, or who laid its cornerstone, while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. Now, if you read through the book of Job, what you will notice is that when God does appear after these 28 chapters of Job complaining and just kind of yelling at God and challenging God, when God appears, he doesn't answer Job's questions. He doesn't answer the questions that Job is asking. And this is very important. It's very deliberate. God does not tell Job what the writer has told us. God doesn't tell Job about the second floor conversations that are taking place. He doesn't tell us about the hall conversation between Satan, the accuser, and Jesus, where Satan says, let me attack him. Let me attack him again. Instead, God just asked Job a bunch of questions that Job can't answer. And when you first read through this book, it looks kind of mean on God's part. Because it's kind of like, I mean, gosh, God, why are you picking on a guy who, of course, is way dumber than you? We're all dumber than God. We can't answer questions that God can ask. And it looks like that's what God's doing. But what God's doing is he's actually pointing out a couple of things. One, he's pointing out to Job that Job has a finite mind. He's pointing out to Job that there are things in this world that you do not understand, that you cannot grasp, and that will not make sense to you because I am God and you are not. Which means that sometimes when we're walking through the land of us, when sometimes we look at our own life and we say, I'm not okay, this isn't okay, this is hard, this doesn't seem right, it doesn't seem fair, why is their life like this, and why is my life like that? And God is going, look, your mind is a finite mind that does not understand the things that I understand. And it's a hard place to be. It's a hard thing to be told. But that's what God is trying to point out to, 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 to Job here. There are things going on in the world that you don't understand. So we have to understand we're in the land of us that our view is significantly more limited than God's view. He sees and understands things that we do not. 
In fact, here's what's interesting. There's, there's an Old Testament scholar. She's actually uh, uh, at the Duke School of Divinity. Her name's Ellen Davis. And she points out that the, the, the questions that God is asking Job here are leading somewhere. They're indicating something about, about who God is, something about the person of God. And it's, it's not just to point out that Job doesn't know. She says there's actually more to it. And so I want to show you what, what God says in Job chapter 38, verse 25. He says this as he's responding back to Job. He says to Job, he says, Who cuts a channel for the torrents of rain and a path for the thunderstorm? Watch this. To water a land where no one lives. <laughs> to water a land where no one lives, an uninhabited desert to satisfy a desolate wasteland and make it sprout with grass. Now listen, in the ancient world of Israel, this would have struck them. In the ancient world of Israel, you live and die based on your capacity to get water. And if you aren't beside a river or a body of water, then rainfall is the most important thing to you. And so for them, this wouldn't make any sense. Why would you waste rain on land that doesn't need it, that no one's ever going to see, that's uninhabited? They would never waste water. Why would God water a land where no one lives? Because God is a God of gratuitous goodness. God is a God of gratuitous goodness. He's good for no reason at all. He's good because he just loves to give, because it's just the nature of God's loving heart. In fact, in Scripture, in the book of Job, there's another place where he shows this nature of himself. In chapter 39, it talks about how God made the ostrich. And it tells us that in the ostrich, he says, look, look, he made them so that the ostrich has wings but will never fly. Her wings are utterly useless. Not only that, but the ostrich is stupid. The ostrich will have eggs and then forget where she put them. She's a terrible parrot, the exact opposite of Job. <laughs> And yet, in verse 39, or in chapter 39 of Job, it says this. It says, yet when she, that's the ostrich, yet when she spreads her feathers to run, she laughs at horse and rider. God says, I made the ostrich because I have a need for speed. <laughs> Look at this useless animal, how fast she is. Isn't that great? Later on in the chapter, God says that he made the behemoth. And the behemoth is most likely a hippo. He says, I made the behemoth, he says to him, he says, I made the behemoth useless to you. <laughs> and it was. The behemoth was considered a chaos animal. That when it came into your camp or into your dwelling or into your place, it would just cause chaos and problems. And so it was considered an animal that had to be put down, that had to be killed. All right? And people would be like, well, why in the world would God have made this animal? It's like us with mosquitoes, right? Why in the world would God make mosquitoes? Right? I can't answer that question. Well, that, that's the behemoth. And I want you, and so in, in Scripture, God says, I made the behemoth useless to you. And then he says, but when it comes to ranking all the things that I've made, I think the behemoth might rank first among the works of God. <laughs> He's saying, the best thing I ever did, God says, man, I had my A game going the day I made that behemoth. <laughs> See, in chapters 39 and 40 of Job, paraphrase, it tells us this. Tell us that God delights in the ox that will never plow and never serve farmers. It's a useless animal. He delights in the wild donkey that will never be tamed, a useless animal. He delights in mountain goats that give birth in secret places that no human being will ever see. And the Leviathan, which is most likely a crocodile, that nobody will ever be able to eat or use for food. He delights in things that we would consider useless. Listen to me, church. Here's something that I know right now. There are some of you sitting here today, and you're like, yeah, my life's not okay. But it's not just that. But in your head, you've heard the lies of the evil and the lies of the devil that have told you you're useless. 
In fact, some of you wake up every single day with that lie in your head. You're useless. You're useless. You're useless. Can I tell you something that God is taking the time to point out here in the book of Job? He says, look, I made these animals useless on purpose. They're not useless. He says, I delight in them. I take joy in them. This whole section of scripture is about God creating and caring for and giving to and delighting in animals that are any good for any purpose. You have purpose. Now, why would God do this? It's because God is gratuitously good, uncontrollably generous and irrationally loving. He just gives for no reason at all. It's his nature. He can't help himself. Now, Job never does find out about the conversations that take place on the second floor. He never finds out about why his suffering took place. And it's for a very important reason. It's not that it accidentally got left out. It's not that the author forgot to put in Scripture that God told Job what happened. The truth of it is he never finds out because Job's story is your story. His story is our story. Listen, in life on this not okay earth where we have to live not okay lives. We're living down here on the first floor. And the truth of the matter is is that in our lives, we never get to hear the reality of the conversations that take place up here. Just like Job. Just like Job. But in the end, Job finds out who God is. He finds out that God is an irrationally loving, gratuitously good God. And that's enough. In fact, I want you to see what, what Job says to God. After God has walked through all these animals that are useless, and God says, I delight in them. After God has talked about how he's gratuitously good, waters land that nobody will ever see. I want you to see what Job says back to God. He says, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. He says, it's, it's, when, Job, when God finishes with Job explaining how gratuitously good he is, Job says, that's enough for me. The goodness of God and the reality of his presence are enough for me. I may not see it in my life, but I see it around me, and that's enough. Listen, here's the truth that some of us have got to walk away with today, and it's simply this. When I can't see the goodness of God in my life, but I can see it around me, sometimes that has to be enough. When I can't see the goodness of God in my own life, but I can see it around me, sometimes it has to be enough. But that's hard, isn't it? It's hard. Let me show you how the book of Job ends. It ends this way. It says, the Lord bless the latter part of Job's life more than the former part. <laughs> he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 donkeys. He also had seven sons and three daughters. Now, I want to back up just a second. Some of you read this and you go, oh, my word. So then all of a sudden, God gives Job more than he ever had before. And you're like, oh, when is that going to happen for me? Let me state one couple of things. One, Job didn't know it was going to happen. And until the day that it had, did happen, he probably was sitting there like you. When's that going to happen? When's that going to happen? God, when are you going to do that? Number two, let me say this. Here's what I can promise you today. Here's what I know. This will happen on the other side of eternity. If it doesn't happen before, it'll happen on the other side of eternity for you. I can promise you that. Let's keep reading. 
What else does he say? It says that also Job had seven sons and three daughters. The first daughter he named Jemima, the second Keziah, and the third Karen Hapuk. Nowhere in all the land were there found women as beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father granted them an inheritance along with their brothers. Now, there's something here that seems to be kind of strange. There's something that, 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 that the readers of, of the Old Testament in the early years, they would have read this and gone, whoa, that doesn't make any sense at all. When we read it, we may not think much of it. But essentially what the do and the, the author here is giving a genealogy of Job. He had seven sons and three daughters. And he, they doesn't, the author doesn't name any of the seven sons. That's not how genealogies were done. In fact, genealogies, and this is just because of at that time in culture, women were thought so low of that they never gave genealogies with, with women's names. That, that's how women were treated back then. It's one of the things I love about the story of Jesus because you see throughout Jesus' life him elevating women over and over and over and over again. You see throughout Scripture God elevating women over and over and over and over again. Even to the point that in the Old Testament he's, he makes Deborah a woman, the judge, the leader over all of Israel. That's a whole other story. And so I don't want you to be confused. The Bible does not devalue women, but their culture devalued women. And so whenever you would do a genealogy, you would never put the women's names. But here the author of Job has done exactly that. Not only that, but it says that Job gave them an inheritance. Which again, that would have struck them as, well, that's stupid. That doesn't make sense. You don't give inheritance to your daughters. See, what happens is that when you have daughters, if they marry, they marry somebody else, they go and live with the person they marry with their family, and the sons stay with their family. If you have sons, when they get married, they'll stay with you. What ends up happening then is that you would only want to give your inheritance to your sons. Because if you give it to your daughters, they'll take it with them to the family that they marry into, and it's like giving your money away for no reason at all. It's like making your money useless to you. So you would give all your inheritance, you'd want your sons to have it, because <clears throat> they're your 401k plan. <laughs> your sons are going to stay with you, take care of you. That's just the culture. That's how it was done. But he gives the daughters an inheritance. Well, why does the writer include this? What is Job doing? <laughs> I think he includes it. Because I think Job has learned how to give to the least strategic creatures. Job has become gratuitously good uncontrollably generous and irrationally loving just like God who waters land that doesn't need it created animals that are useless see when Job cannot possibly profit or gain by it he gives what I want you to see about Job is he's no longer controlled by the land of us but rather he has become the wonderful wizard of us who has learned how to live to give you like that? If you want to get out of the land of us, then while you're in it, become a person who is irrationally generous, uncontrollably loving, gratuitously good, like Jesus. This brings us to our so what moment. So what does this mean? What do we do with this? Where do we go from here? See, Satan was dead wrong about Job. The central question in Job is could a human being hold on to God, hold on to faith, hold on to love and generosity and goodness even when it doesn't seem to pay off at all? <clears throat> could someone hold on to God even when it doesn't pay off for them? And one could and one did. And so I ask you, can you follow his example? Can you hold on to God even when it doesn't seem to pay off? Because you see, if you only hold on to God when it pays off, that's not really faith. That's not really surrender. That's not really following. That's God, if you give to me, I'll give back to you. Can you hold on to God even if it doesn't pay off? Job could not see the upper floor. 
Job did not know the conversations that were going on up here. Job did not know that his story would become a story that would speak to generation after generation after generation. He did not know that, but he still held on to God. And so church, I challenge you, if you're here today and you say, man, my life is not okay. Hang on. Hang on. Keep going. Don't let go. Don't give up. God is so good. And God is so close. You and I, we don't see these conversations that take place on the second floor. We're just like Job. We live here on the first floor. But I promise you, there will be a day when the payoff comes. And if not sooner, for sure, the day that Jesus returns. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you for a servant like Job who sets an example for us, Lord. I thank you for the ministry that you gave him of being somebody who follows you so well. And Lord, here's what I would pray. I know there are so many of us that are going through a land of us right now. So many of us that are going through something and we just say life's not okay and life's hard and it's not fair and it's not right. And and so God, I ask, would you meet us right where we're at? Would you help us to understand we don't have to be perfect? And God, I pray right now, I come against the evil one who in so many of our lives is trying to tell us you're useless, you're useless, you're useless. In the name of Jesus right now, I come against that. God, I pray that we would be reminded that God made animals useless and still delights in them, but God made us with purpose. And so when the evil one says you're useless, Lord, may we say, no, I know the truth of who I am in Christ Jesus. And so, Lord, help us to continue to fight to find the purpose you have for us. Help us to, as a friend of mine puts it, turn our mess into miracles. To trust you. And to follow you. Even when life is not okay. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.